This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Bryn Hartman hoped she was losing her mind. As she stood, horrified, in the doorway of her bedroom, she prayed that she was hallucinating. But the scene in front of her was all too real. Her husband, Phil, lay in their bed, He looked so peaceful that it was almost surprising Bryn's screams hadn't woken him. Her husband of 10 years, the father of her two children, was dead. Nothing would ever be the same. Bryn's heart drummed in her chest, entirely unsure of what she should do, but driven by the impulse to share her grief, she picked up the phone. Her friends, Marcy and Steve, lived just a few blocks away and would be quickest to arrive. She breathed heavily as the phone rang. When Steve answered, he sounded a little groggy. It was just after 6 a.m. and he was barely awake. Bryn clapped a hand over her mouth, afraid of what she was about to say. She barely managed to get the words out. Steve, I killed Phil. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. 
Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Last week, we looked at the lives of Phil and Bryn Hartman. As Phil found fame and success on Saturday Night Live during the late 1980s, Bryn could only watch, nursing the pain brought on by her own stunted acting career. When Bryn's cocaine addiction relapsed in 1997, it looked like the marriage was on its last legs. This week, we'll examine how the troubled Hartman marriage ended with a crime that shocked Hollywood and left an entire nation in mourning. Forty-year-old Bryn Hartman sat in her kitchen, waiting for her two kids to arrive home from school. As she watched the clock tick down the minutes, she reflected on what her life had become over the past decade. Apart from her beautiful children, nothing had really turned out the way she wanted it to, and she placed the blame squarely at the feet of her husband, 49-year-old Phil. Somehow, Bryn had married a man who didn't seem able to love her, not in the way she needed at least. When she and Phil first met in 1986, he looked at her like she was the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen, and she loved him deeply for it. But after a few years, he'd lost interest in her. He prioritized his career over her and their two children. Now, almost 10 years into the marriage, she felt desperate for love, for attention, for something to make her feel good about herself. With no career to speak of, she felt adrift. Over the years, Phil had sporadically shown interest in helping her get in front of the camera. Though she suspected his interest was less to do with her happiness and more about his own ego, she took what she could get. A couple of months ago, around her birthday, she'd asked Phil to read a film script she'd written with her friend, Cherie. To Bryn's delight, he'd enjoyed the script and promised to show it to his agents. He even agreed to play one of the lead roles once it had been picked up. But then, nothing. Bren didn't hear anything more after he took the script. She began to worry. Was it really any good? Had he lied to make her feel better? She didn't know if she wanted the truth. She was once more plagued by feelings of inadequacy something she'd struggled with since she arrived in Los Angeles over a decade ago. Lately, the only thing that made her feel good was getting high. She knew Phil hated it when she used, but she couldn't find the strength to stop, not for a man who was hardly ever around. Bryn looked again at the clock and didn't know whether to be relieved or angry that there wasn't enough time for a bump before her kids got home. Anxious for something to do, she picked up the phone. Beside it was a leaflet for a nearby spa. The flyer advertised an endless courtship package for couples. Bryn decided to make a reservation for her and Phil. Things might be falling apart, but she wouldn't let her marriage slip away without a fight. If they could just make it through this week, things might look better on the other side. 
Two days later, on Wednesday, May 27, 1998, Phil left home to visit some of his prized luxury cars at the Van Nuys Airport. He knew he should stay home with his wife and children. That's what Bryn would want him to do. But lately, something had been keeping him away from the family home. He was stressed around Bryn. Seeing her reminded him of their troubles, especially her continued use of cocaine. Though he told his mother that he would divorce Bryn if she didn't stop using, Phil stayed with his wife. Leaving would be hard on the children and it would be his third failed marriage. He couldn't bear it. He felt sure that things would improve over time, eventually. Before I continue with Phil's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In 2018, a study published in the November issue of the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology looked at the reasons people stay in unhappy relationships. In the past, research suggested that people might stay because they fear re-entering the dating pool or want to avoid the pain of a breakup. But the 2018 study found that people who want to leave their relationship might stay longer because they feel their partners are more committed than they are. It's possible that Phil didn't leave Bryn because he knew that doing so would hurt her more than it hurt him. Whatever his reasons, Phil's decision to carry on would prove to be a deadly mistake. The night he went to the Van Nuys airport, Bryn went out with her friend Christine. She decided that Phil's obsession with his cars wasn't going to derail her whole evening. Leaving their two children with a nanny, Bryn made her way to a nearby Italian chain restaurant. Bryn and Christine stayed in the small bar area and over a couple of hours, Bryn drank two Cosmopolitans and a beer. Neither woman ordered any food. As they drank, Bryn complained about her waning sex life with Phil. Aside from the sex, however, she reported that their relationship seemed to be doing better. She still had hope things would be okay. After a couple of hours, Bryn seemed keen to keep the night going, but her friend objected. So instead, Bryn called her former lover, Ron Douglas, to ask if she could come over. Many years ago, the two had used drugs together, but now they just like to hang out as friends. Just after 10 p.m., Bryn arrived at Ron's house. Over about two hours, she drank three more beers and opened up to Ron about her marriage. She complained about his long absences and his use of pot. The marijuana, she complained, made it so that even when he was home, he wasn't really with this family. Just before 1 a.m., Ron convinced Bryn that it was time to go home to Phil and her kids. Reluctantly, a tipsy Bryn took his advice. The details about what happened next are fuzzy, but based on what we do know, we can take a guess. Bryn arrived home around 1 a.m. on May 28th. It's unclear if Phil was still awake, but if he was, then it's likely the two fought about Bryn's drunken state. They may have also fought about his absence as a husband. Then, either to avoid further argument or because he was tired, Phil curled up in bed and went to sleep. Last week, we discussed Phil's tendency to behave passively when Bryn became irritated. He often walked away or went to bed in the middle of heated arguments. We know that Bryn used cocaine at some stage after she arrived home. What we can't tell is exactly when or how much. 
Whether or not she got high before or after what she did next is anyone's guess. At some time between 1 and 3 a.m., Bryn entered the master bedroom. She crept into the ensuite bathroom, where she opened the metal lockbox containing her and Phil's guns. Slowly, as not to wake her sleeping husband, she retrieved Phil's Smith & Wesson 38 pistol. The small gun fits snugly in her palm. After a few moments' consideration, she walked to her side of the bed. She carefully aimed the gun at Phil and pulled the trigger three times. None of the gunshots woke her children or any neighbors. No one knew that Phil Hartman had just been murdered. Around 3.30 a.m., Bryn called her friend Ron Douglas. It had been at least two hours since she arrived home, and it's unclear exactly what happened in that time. Bryn told Ron that Phil wasn't home. He'd left a note telling her he'd be back later. Explaining that she didn't want to be alone, she asked if she could spend the night at his house. But Ron told her not to come. She shouldn't leave the children home alone. When he hung up, he hoped she would go to sleep. But 20 minutes later, Bryn was at his front door, begging to be let in. She was disheveled, shoeless, and clearly under the influence of something stronger than alcohol. Ron had little choice but to let her in. She was in no state to drive home. Bryn paced around the living room a few times, stumbling a little. When she finally came to a stop, she collapsed onto Ron's couch like a puppet with cut strings. Looking at her feet, she said through tears, I killed Phil. Bryn was so out of it, Ron ignored her confession. Bryn was no killer. Phil couldn't possibly be dead. For the next few minutes, Bryn passed in and out of consciousness. When Ron finally managed to keep her lucid for more than a few seconds, she ran to the bathroom to throw up. After she had finished vomiting, he decided it was best to keep her awake until she sobered up. He offered to make her some tea. As they waited in the kitchen, watching the kettle boil, she asked him to call her house. Although Ron was hesitant, he didn't want to wake Phil. He did as she asked. He dialed Bryn's number and waited as the phone rang and rang. When there was no answer, Bryn begged him to try again. After the phone rang out for a third time, she grabbed her designer purse from the living room floor. As she dug around in it, something heavy clattered onto the kitchen tile. She bent to pick up the toy-like gun and handed it to Ron. She said, See, I told you I killed Phil. But she still seemed unsure of her words, like she couldn't really remember what she was talking about. Open-mouthed and stunned, Ron took the gun. Holding it gave him pause. Was Bryn telling the truth? But he quickly pushed those thoughts aside. She was just high. Still, Bryn needed to go home to her children. Phil clearly wasn't home and her children needed someone there. Just before 6 a.m., he convinced Bryn that it was time to go. She had one condition, that he went with her 
Reluctantly, he agreed to follow her in his car. He wrapped the gun in a plastic shopping bag and stowed it in his trunk. A few minutes later, Bryn pulled her car into the garage and waited for Ron to follow her into the house. He grabbed the gun and, with growing apprehension, stepped over the threshold of the Hartman family home. Staying close behind Bryn, he walked with her to the master bedroom. Together, they peered in through the open door. To Ron's horror, Phil's body lay on the bed as if he were asleep. Three bullet holes pierced his corpse. At the sight of her husband's lifeless form, Bryn began to scream. Phil Hartman was dead. After this, Bryn Hartman confronts the reality of what she's done. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the early hours of May 28, 1998, 40-year-old Bryn Hartman convinced her friend Ron Douglas to accompany her back to her home in Encino, California. Before they left, she told him she had killed her husband, Phil, and then handed him a pistol. Ron could tell that Bryn was drunk and, he suspected, high on cocaine. Ron followed his friend across town in his car. He was unnerved by her crazed confession, but hoped that Bryn was simply spouting nonsense in her drug state. Unfortunately, she was telling the truth. When they walked into the house, Ron was shocked to find 49-year-old Phil's dead body in bed. As Bryn screamed, Ron looked down at the gun in his hand. He was holding the murder weapon in a grocery bag. He took a step back from Phil's lifeless form and thought vaguely about calling 911. Before he could reach the phone by the bed, Bryn was already dialing. He listened to her tell a friend that she had killed her husband and asked them to come over. When she hung up, he walked slowly back down the hall. He couldn't bear to stay in the room where Phil's body lay. Once he found another phone, Ron dialed 911. He gave the operator the Hartman's address and reported that a man had been shot. The dispatcher confirmed that help was on the way. In a daze, Ron hung up the phone. He could hear Bryn's cries coming from the bedroom and returned to make sure she was all right. When he got to the bedroom, he found its double doors closed. He knocked and asked Bryn if he could come in. When she didn't answer him, he tried the handle. Locked. Though Ron was worried about Bryn, he felt at least a little safer with the gun in his possession. For now, he left Bryn to her own devices and walked away from the master bedroom to check on Bryn's two children. Inside the bedroom, Bryn was once more on the phone, this time with her sister, Kathy. Again, Bryn confessed to killing Phil. When Kathy asked her why, Bryn answered simply, I don't know, I'm sick, I don't remember. Concerned, 
Kathy asked if there was anyone else in the house she could speak to. Bryn ignored the question and asked her sister to tell the children that she loved them. Eventually, Bryn told Kathy that she had to go and hung up. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ron found nine-year-old Sean's room and got him out of bed. Finding the front door deadbolted, they made their way out the back. At the rear gate of the property, they were met by police officers who took custody of Sean. Ron handed off the bagged gun with relief and told the police that six-year-old Bergen was still inside the house. Moving cautiously, police entered the Hartman's house and headed in the direction of the master bedroom. Inside, Bryn was once again on the phone with her sister. She begged Kathy to take care of her children and asked again that she tell Sean and Bergen how much she loved them. From the hallway, an officer called out to Bryn. At the sound of her name, Bryn ended her call with Kathy. Looking around the room, her gaze fell on Phil's body. Shakily, she walked to the ensuite bathroom. Inside the metal lockbox, where she had left it just hours earlier, Bryn found her own Charter Arms 38. Holding the gun tenderly, she climbed into bed next to Phil. She sat against the headboard and pushed a pillow behind her back. She could hear the police officers moving around in the hallway outside. Bryn knew she was running out of time. With a final scream, she put the barrel of the gun to her head and pulled the trigger. In the hallway outside, a police officer heard the gun go off. Fearing for Bergen's safety, they rushed to get the six-year-old out of the house. Once Bergen was safe, authorities turned their attention to the bedroom. Unaware of the gunshot's origin or exactly what had happened inside, the police created a distraction while they forced entry to the bedroom. One officer stood outside the house while others waited in the hallway. In a coordinated movement, one officer in the garden threw a brick through the bedroom window while a colleague forced their way through the locked door. Once inside, it was clear that they needn't have worried about distracting Bryn. She was on the bed, slumped to one side, her head tilted towards Phil. Word traveled quickly among the emergency services on the team. Phil and Bryn Hartman were both dead. With the home evacuated, the property was cordoned off. Police tape announced the situation to the neighborhood. What had last night been a quiet family home was now a crime scene. And no one could explain exactly what had happened. While neighbors and first responders puzzled over the shocking events, reporters began to show up. Word of the murder-suicide spread throughout Los Angeles in a matter of hours. Despite the lack of firm details, news outlets ran the story with what they knew and what they thought they knew. Before lunch, the story had spread around the country. So swiftly did the news spread that the Los Angeles coroner's office was fielding calls from reporters before they had even been officially notified about the deaths. Current and former colleagues of Phil's heard with heartbreak that their friend had been murdered. At a scheduled table read for The Simpsons, showrunner Mike Scully broke the news to the cast and crew. Phil had lent his voice to over 50 episodes of the popular animated sitcom and was a beloved member of the cast. 
the news hit hard and the table read was postponed. Elsewhere, friends who knew Phil from his other professional endeavors gathered at the house of his friend and Saturday Night Live co-star John Lovitz. According to those who were there, everyone wanted a place to remember Phil and maybe share some laughs about the gifted comedian. They swapped stories about their friend and more than a few people wondered aloud how this could have happened. Their grief forced them to look for answers. In a 2005 article in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine titled Homicide Survivors, Research and Practice Implications, a homicide survivor is defined as a family member, close friend, or loved one of a homicide victim. The article looks at the psychological impact of being a homicide survivor. The article acknowledges that grief is an important part of a homicide survivor's experience, but also compares their experience to that of someone who suffers from PTSD. The symptoms of homicide exposure can include flashbacks, impairment of social functioning, and homicide-related thoughts, among others. The authors also point out that homicide survivors will often be preoccupied with thoughts of revenge and feel tremendous anger. In this case of murder-suicide, there was no one at whom Phil's family and friends could throw questions or accusations. Bryn was dead and, by her own admission, didn't even know why she killed her husband. But as the Hartman's loved ones came to terms with this, police continued to search for the truth. Back at the crime scene, investigators tried to piece together at least the last few hours of Bryn and Phil's lives. The people Bryn had spoken to during her last hours provided small windows into her mental state before and after the crime. They were even able to assemble a timeline of the night before. They knew Bryn had been drinking and hadn't returned home until after midnight. They also knew that she returned to Ron's house around 3 a.m. after the murder. They were determined to find out what happened between Bryn and Phil between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. after she arrived at their Encino home. After this, we'll explore what really happened in those missing hours. Now, back to the story. On May 28, 1998, 40-year-old Bryn Hartman shot and killed her husband of 10 years, 49-year-old Phil. In the wake of the puzzling tragedy, police did their best to piece together what exactly had happened between the couple. It was clear that Bryn had shot her husband before turning the gun on herself, However, her motivations for doing so were less apparent. Toxicology reporting from the coroner's office later revealed that Bryn's blood alcohol content at the time of death was 0.12%, much higher than the legal limit for drivers in California, which is 0.08%. The report also showed trace amounts of cocaine in Bryn's system. Chief Coroner Craig Harvey explained that Bryn ingested the drug around five hours prior to her death. If this timeline is correct, it suggests that Bryn began using coke shortly after she arrived home from her night out. The coroner's office stated that the alcohol and cocaine most definitely intensified the other's effects, but stopped short of directly connecting the drug use with her actions that night. The toxicology report further revealed that Bryn was on the prescription drug Zoloft when she died. Harvey called Zoloft a wild card. As we discussed last week, 
Bryn started taking Zoloft after her son's psychiatrist gave her a starter kit of the drug. Typically prescribed for depression, the drug is also used to treat obsessive-compulsive disorder and panic disorder. It seems that Bryn was diagnosed with none of these conditions, which makes it hard to understand why she was given the drug in the first place. Harvey's classification of Zoloft as a wild card reflects how little was known about it in 1998. At the time, not much was understood about the effects of mixing antidepressants with other substances, although most prescription medications did and still do warn patients to avoid alcohol. At the time Bryn was taking it, Zoloft packaging did include a warning to stay off alcohol, a warning typically reinforced by a prescribing doctor. But Bryn had been given a starter kit of the drug and, as far as we can tell, was never officially given a prescription for the antidepressant. It's therefore difficult to know if she had been clearly warned of the dangers of mixing Zoloft with alcohol. If she had, she may have been more cautious about her intake of both substances. A 2014 study by David B. Minks and Andrew Herxheimer and published in the International Journal of Risk and Safety in Medicine tested the effects of mixing alcohol with antidepressants like Zoloft. The results were alarming. In the 201 cases examined, eight cases resulted in homicide. Though the sample size is small, that still suggests a correlation between acts of violence and the combination of alcohol and prescription antidepressants. The results also included instances of attempted murder and suicide. The study further showed that 53% of subjects displayed memory impairment. This tracks with Ron Douglas's account of the events, which suggests that Bryn didn't clearly remember if she'd killed Phil or not until she returned home to find him dead. Evidence has shown that antidepressants can cause complex behavioral effects, especially in early treatment and after increase or decrease in dosage. Given Bryn's own disjointed experience on Zoloft, this could help explain her actions on May 28th. According to records, Bryn began taking Zoloft sometime in April of 1998. She briefly stopped following a medical procedure, but resumed at a half dose sometime in May. Though there's no way for us to know for sure, it's entirely possible the combinations of drugs and alcohol in Bryn's system caused her to lose control. We know that she had several drinks over the course of the evening and hadn't eaten much, if anything. It's fair to say that she was at least tipsy when she arrived home around 1 a.m. Given her extremely high blood alcohol reading after death, it's entirely possible that she drank even more after she got home. According to the coroner's toxicology report, it's also likely she ingested cocaine around this time. We know that Bryn's struggles with her addiction were a source of friction between her and Phil. If he was awake when she got home, it's possible that they fought about her intoxication or about his frequent absences from the family home. If the pair fought, it's likely that Phil abandoned the argument to go to bed. Then again, perhaps the argument did reach a resolution. If Phil found out that Bryn was drunk and high that night, he may have even threatened to finally divorce her. Her judgment impaired by the cocktail of drugs and alcohol in her system, she might have believed that the only way for her to stay with her children was to murder her husband. Unfortunately, 
The convenient presence of at least two firearms in the house would have made it only too easy for Bryn to act on this desperate impulse. The truth is that we will never know exactly what happened in those fateful missing hours. As coroner Craig Harvey pointed out, there were wild cards in play that could have affected Bryn's actions in ways we haven't thought of. All we know for sure is that Phil and Bryn Hartman's lives were both cut tragically short. In the aftermath of their deaths, Phil and Bryn's surviving family members came together to grieve and say goodbye. Though there was tension between the families, they each set aside the anger they felt and the blame they wanted to cast. Outside the chapel, photographers waited, hoping to catch a glimpse of mourners. They were eager for scraps of news in the wake of the sensational murder-suicide that had rocked Hollywood. Phil's brother had advised both families to close ranks in the days after the 28th. His hope was that if the media didn't get any dirt from the Hartman's loved ones, then they would simply stop trying. But the legacy of Phil and Bryn's deaths lingered long after the police tape was pulled down at the Encino bungalow. News Radio, the sitcom on which Phil played a lead role, was due to film its fifth season just months after his murder. But with Phil gone, there was an empty seat on set. In the end, it was John Lovitz, who had known Phil since his days at the Groundlings Improv Group in the 80s, who stepped in to fill the void he left behind. According to Lovitz, his new co-star, Andy Dick, took umbrage with Lovitz's sudden role on the show. For his part, Lovitz, still in pain following the death of his close friend, blamed Dick for Bryn's actions. He thought that Bryn had been sober until the New Year's Eve party, at which Dick had given her cocaine. Though tensions between the two continued to simmer for years, they tried to make peace and move on with their lives. However, things erupted again in 2006. Neither was ready to forgive or forget about what had been said in the aftermath of Phil's death. According to Lovitz, when he was having dinner in a Los Angeles restaurant, Dick approached him and swiped a drink from the table. After downing the drink, he told Lovitz, I put the Phil Hartman hex on you. You're the next one to die. Lovitz had Dick removed from the restaurant. The following July, the two ran into each other at a comedy club. After the show, Lovitz asked Dick to apologize for his tasteless remark. He refused. Incensed, Lovitz grabbed Dick by the shirt and slammed his head into the bar several times as people watched in horror. Lovitz vowed he would have kept going if a doorman hadn't pulled the pair apart. Lovitz, Phil's close friend, one of the homicide survivors, seemed to still be suffering from the psychological consequences almost 10 years later. In March of 1999, Bryn's brother, Gregory Amdahl, filed a lawsuit against pharmaceutical giant Pfizer. The suit alleged that Zoloft was the cause of Bryn and Phil's deaths. Gregory and his lawyers believe that the alcohol and cocaine were irrelevant to her actions and that the antidepressant was wholly responsible. Pfizer eventually settled the matter out of court. The deaths of Phil and Bryn Hartman shocked their loved ones just as much as they shocked the world. Their love affair, 
marked so boldly by early passion, had become a source of frustration to both of them by the time it reached its deadly climax in 1998. Throughout their struggles, both Phil and Bryn seemed to think a solution to their woes was just around the corner. Perhaps they'd hoped to reclaim the passion they had once felt for each other. But waiting proved to be a fatal mistake, proving that sometimes, when passion fades, all there's left to do is say goodbye. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Phil Hartman, among the many sources we used, we found You Might Remember Me by Mike Thomas especially helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Joel Callen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Thank you.